Great. Well, hello, everyone. Welcome to another great episode of Adventures in DevOps. We are kicking off a new series, which I imagine we'll do maybe monthly or every other month, which is uh, there are a lot of fantastic DevOps books out there, and we uh, will be reading them and discussing them. And maybe every once in a while, we'll be able to get the author on the show, too. I, I hope that my long-term goals for this. So I am Nell Shamrell Harrington. I'm a senior research at Mozilla. And with me is one of our new panelists, uh, Jeff Groman. Jeff, how are you? I'm doing great. Hey, it's, uh, it's good to be back here. We are very glad to have you back. Do you want to share just a little bit about yourself to uh, refresh our uh, listeners' memories? Yeah, absolutely. So, you know, I come in from more of the, uh, the security side of things. Um, I've worked with a lot of dev teams over the years, so I kind of feel like, um, you know, both uh, DevOps and just sort of seeing some of the struggles with, um, you know, the agile movement has been sort of interesting to me as, a, like I say, as a security folk um, who's, who's always tried to, you know, sort of help teams to inject uh, security earlier on um, in the cycle, and um, it's it's just it's it's always been fun to me to work with those teams and to be part of these conversations. I mean, so much of business today is is built on the underlying software. I mean, the, um, the Unicorn Project is such a great you know story. I think because of that. So anyway, um, you know, you asked me a a, a a short question. I gave you a long answer, but. Um, but yeah, I'm just excited to be here, and this is a, it's a fun topic to discuss. Hey, that's absolutely okay. This is a podcast, not <laughs> live radio, so we have, well, we don't have a limited time, but we don't have the same kind of strict time limits that, say, an NPR show or something ha- has. Right, right. That's good. Right. <laughs> this episode is sponsored by Gravitational. As your team and cloud infrastructure grows, you may want to reevaluate how you access SSH servers and Kubernetes clusters. Gravitational Teleport is an emerging open source replacement for OpenSSH, which was built for modern cloud workflows. Teleport is opinionated. It does not allow SSH keys, and instead it insists on certificate-based authentication, making it dead easy to set up and use. Teleport is fully compatible with your SSH and Kubernetes tooling, comes with a beautiful web UI and an audit log, and it allows users to access servers outside of data centers like IoT devices. It was called Teleport because it creates the illusion that all your company's servers are in the same room with you, even if some of them are self-driving vehicles. Download Teleport on gravitational.com teleport or find it on github.com gravitational teleport. Well, let's go ahead and get into it. We read The Unicorn Project by Gene Kim, who is the author of The Phoenix Project. And as we were chatting before we started recording the show, I mentioned to Jeff, when I read The Phoenix Project, the book before The Unicorn Project, the first part actually made me cry uh, because it was so familiar and so painful. And I almost wanted to put the book down. I was like, oh God, at that moment, I was living through the first half of The Phoenix Project. And so I tweeted that at Gene Kim and he responded with, well, I'm really glad you didn't read the earliest because not worse things happened. Uh, so I'm kind of glad I didn't read the earlier drafts as well. So the Unicorn Project, I don't know if I'd call it a sequel. It's definitely in the same company, same universe, and it's at some point after the events of the Phoenix Project. But there's much, I've noticed a much more of a focus on IT automation. Uh, it seemed like Phoenix Project was, you know, taking control of the chaos, partly through automation, but also part of human measures like a change review board, etc. A unicorn project much more focused on automating the the whole process. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I I think uh, you know when I was reading, you know, having read the the um, the Phoenix Project first, and having read, um, and that was a couple of years ago, and having read the uh, the Unicorn Project, um, you know, just uh, the last few days, um, what struck me was it was almost like two sides of the same coin, right? The first was really talking more from the infrastructure side. Um, how do we, you know, sort of get rid of those constraints? Um, how can, you know, operations stay in tune and, and stay, you know, and keep up with um, what was going on on the development side of the house? And now what we're seeing is, okay, but wait a second here, what happens when that, you know, all of a sudden those things are going really well and now we're starting to see problems with just the whole development cycle and how it, you know, how it can get sort of kludged up as well. 
Um, so that was sort of my, my first take was, wow, this is so interesting that it's just the, the flip side of uh, the Phoenix project. Right. Yeah, I, I didn't think about that, but you're absolutely right. This one was much more from the developer perspective. Yeah, you know, and, and I don't know if you, um, did you read the, the goal? Um, I did. I've got it on a shelf uh, right by my head here. Yep. Yeah, I mean, because um, I think, I'm trying to remember what order I read all these books in, and I think I read the goal before I read the Phoenix Project, and that was so, I mean, that's also just such good reading, you know, just understanding, and, and just the, you know, I mean, obviously Jim Kim and, and the rest of the team, sort of, the other, the other authors sort of picked up on that, on that parallelism of, you know, between manufacturing and um, IT, um, but it's just, it's just so, so, um, surprising you know and i guess i I just felt it was worth to just to take a couple minutes and just Mm -hmm. talk about that just to say hey wait a second take a step back and like look at um you know manufacturing sort of went through this revolution a few decades ago in the 80s um and you know sort of where i guess you know maybe manufacturing technology started to get faster and get better and sort of overtake our ability to utilize it in an efficient way and then all of a sudden they sort of revolutionize hey how do we do this better and how do we get more efficient and how do we do it safer mm-hmm. um and now it feels like we're sort of doing the same thing with it and with um you know and with development you know as it pertains to the unicorn project where we're saying okay we've gotten really good like there's so many new tools and processes and all that but it's not it's 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 as if the technology and the tools and you know have sort of gotten a little bit ahead of us and now like we got to retool our teams and figure out how do we better um utilize you know what we have especially with just incredible amount of data um i guess that's Mm -hmm. the other piece of it as well um anyway yeah i just i just it's so interesting though just sort of see how this all sort of um works together and sort of falls through uh, you know again with that paradigm of you know, how it all worked out in the manufacturing realm a few decades ago. Right. It It's interesting to me, you know, there's, there's often this debate on Twitter, you know, is software, you know, kind of, is it like crafting something? Should you be a software craft person or is it more like manufacturing something? And I think there's arguments for both, certainly. Uh, but I'm remembering in manufacturing, uh, you know, we went from, creating each, you know, let's say a firearm, you would craft each individual rifle uh, and you would have to create parts specifically for those individual rifles. Or let's use cars as an example. Early cars before Model T, you had to, you had a very skilled craftsperson to create only for that because every car was a little bit different. Once you got to mass manufacturing with, you know, Henry Ford's Model T line, then a part could be used in any car. And I know there was worry that that meant that craftsmanship would be lost. I don't think it was. It was applied in a different way. And I think the same thing with software in ops. Uh, there's the character in it, the QA director, not Kurt, the, the one Kurt works with or works under, who anytime he hears any whiff of automating QA uh, tries to shut right. it down immediately because he thinks that's going to put everyone out of their jobs. <laughs> and that is a very common fear when it yep. comes to automation. But yep. as far as I know, they didn't I, I liked that at the end of the book, uh, so it's, it's going to be full of spoilers, by the way, to anyone who hasn't read the book. <laughs> At the end of the book, he goes through a restructuring and a, a bit of a layoff. And we didn't see massive layoffs of the QA team uh, as a result of the automation because they were still needed. Uh, they needed to be with the developers. There's still a need for specialized skills, but the applied was a little bit different. Yeah, I, I, I think it's that was, I agree with you. I think that was an interesting part to me as well at the end of the book where everybody is sort of retooling, right? The MRP team that Maxine comes from, like all these folks are sort of end up moving into different realms um, because good engineers um, and good people are just, you need them. Um, it doesn't matter if you are a QA person today or an engineer or a developer of a specific system. Um, I mean, all of those people are needed and all those types of people are needed um, and all those different perspectives that you bring to the table um, are, are needed in order to be a successful company. Um, 
yeah, I, I, I thought that was a really interesting and, and sort of just, you know, sort of should be opening our minds to like, you know, just sort of, you know, even individually as career opportunities, like this is where things are going. Like what we do today is going to be very different from what we're doing tomorrow or next year. And we just have to realize that. And it's not, you know, and we will constantly retool ourselves, but um, it's not necessarily a bad thing, right? It just means there's new opportunities, there's areas for growth and, and that sort of thing. And you contrast that with the beginning of the book. I was just flipping the first chapter open when it, it starts off with uh, Maxine, our main character, our senior software developer slash architect, uh, being quoted essentially for an that she was on vacation for. So she really had nothing to do with it. And that, I was reading that thinking, I would quit. Honestly, I know. <laughs> it's like, uh, you're staying there. Uh, right. But, right. you know, everyone makes their own choices. And there wouldn't be much of a book if she, if the character hadn't stayed there. Right. It's, it's kind of like, <laughs> say, well, what if, what if this had happened and Romeo and Juliet hadn't died? Well, then there wouldn't have been a play. Uh, so, <laughs> that 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 happens sometimes. But I once heard someone say, I cannot remember who it was, but you can fire your way liability. Uh, you can't, anytime there's an outage, if you fire and you're losing all that crucial context uh, right. that you need. And if you are continuously firing people because of outages, it's not the people that needs to change. It's the way the company operates that needs to change. And you kind of see them go through this realization throughout the novel. Yep. Yep. No, absolutely. You know, when I saw, you know, that sort of struck me too. And it, you know, again, you know, with my background is a little bit different, but what it reminded me was, and I haven't seen this all that often, but I was working with a client, this is a couple of years ago, a few years ago now. Um, and they were managing, they're still maintaining like an old cold fusion application. And it had, um, I don't know if it had PHI on it, but it was, you know, it was health related. It certainly had, you know, sensitive information for its clients. It was, yeah, you know, client-facing type of app. Uh, still running on a really old version of Cold Fusion that was, you know, vulnerable and easily exploitable and all of that. And a business decision was made, you know what, we're not going to spend the money. We're not going to replatform this because, you know, whatever it was, that line of business is going to go away. It's going to be sold. It's going to be, I mean, we've all seen that decision process being made. Like we're not going to invest in it because there's some longer term, strategic business plan and we're not going to spend the money now for because of that right so what happens we can all sort of predict this um at some point it does get compromised the server gets compromised and um you know i was working with this with the client at this point and they're trying to figure out well how did it happen why did it happen because we want to fire the person who who you know made this happen and i'm like you're running an old outdated version like who are you trying to point the finger at um, but they had apparently put in some kludgy, you know, process where, okay, we're not going to expose the admin interface publicly because we know it's exploitable. So therefore, you know, maybe you have to like expose it for like 10 minutes while you do something. And then you, you know, you basically have to then unexpose it or they had right. some kind of crazy thing like that. Right. And, and so, you know, they're thinking, oh, well, obviously the admin, you know, went in, exposed it and never, and never took it off, never took it offline. And so we're going to, you know, we want to just go in and, and fire that person. And I remember having conversations and conversations, you know, sort of talking them out of that saying, it's the stupidest thing. Why don't you go to the person who made that business decision not to replatform it? Why don't you fire that person instead? You know, I mean, or at least, you know, I didn't really say that because I don't think firing anybody makes sense. I mean, right. these are business decisions. You, you know, sometimes you take on risk and you feel like, okay, it's worth taking on that risk for whatever reason. I get it. But if you're going to make those sort of business decisions, and I feel like that, you know, it's, it's the same of any outage. When you made those business decisions that, hey, we're not going to change the environment or, or we're not going to put in, you know, better processes or whatever, then you're making a, a risky decision. And when there's outages as a result of that, you can't point the blame at any one person. Um, it's, it becomes more of a cultural issue than anything else. It's me. Uh, you know, I've seen hundreds of outages of varying degrees in my career at this point. And of those hundreds, two, uh, two, I can could, I could still think of them, were because of gross misbehavior. And that's really weird when that happens. Like this was yeah. dealing with someone who really wanted to do bad things. We'll leave it at that. Um, right. But, and when that happens, you know, that does need to be dealt with. Uh, but 
the question we still real, realized we had was, what was it about the system that allowed them to do what they did without someone being alerted? Because yeah. that's still a systemic problem uh, rather than just a p- problem with this one particular individual. Right. Right. Yeah. I mean, I, I agree. I've seen those types of things. I mean, you know, thankfully not so often, but that's, be, that's more of a law enforcement, you know, issue at that point. Cause you know, and then you're breaking laws too. And you know, that sort of thing, but you're right, you know, systemically, how, how does that person have the, you know, have all of the ability um, without, um, you know, it either being detected or without it being sort of stopped because of whatever it is, segregation of duties or other, you know, other sort of controls that should probably be in place that, that somebody would have, you know, would have been much harder to, you know, to do something like that. Um, but yeah, I agree. I mean, but, you know, for the most part, it's, you know, somebody fat fingers something or somebody just, you know, mm-hmm. makes a, you know, uh, everyone too tired and made just a, you know, a dumb decision, a bad decision, something like that. I mean, it's, it's just human error that, creeps in it's 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 part of you know it's just the normal part of uh you know of what happens on a day-to-day basis i uh, made an error once when i was deploying api change this is when i worked at chef and we had public uh, a blameless a public blameless postmortem for it but what happened was i took down aws ops work for two hours i took down an entire aws service wow. and thank god i wasn't fired because i learned a lot from that we learned a lot from that and we made changes uh to yeah. our system because it had been kind of an obscure part of the api that we it just hadn't occurred to us to and we didn't have automation around making sure that particular part worked right and it never happened again. <laughs> well, that's that's the amazing thing, right? I mean, I, I can, yeah, I mean, I, I can point back. I remember some mistakes I made early in my career. I was uh, back in my network engineering days. I remember having probably a little bit too much faith in the hardware um, and, you know, doing something like, oh, hot swappable. That's got to work perfectly and seamlessly, right? And I remember taking down the core router, do, you know, thinking, oh, yeah, I can just swap this part out, you know, live. And no, hot swappable isn't uh, 100% guarantee. <laughs> But, you know, you're right. You learn that you, you sort of made that mistake once and you're like, wow, okay, now I'm not going to be as trusting. I'm not going to, or I'm not going to, whatever it was, right. I, I'm not going to sort of jump into that boat again um, without really thinking it through and, and you know, putting a, a better process in place before I do that. Right. So shifting uh, conversation or topics a little bit, you know, the thing I love the Phoenix project, that I, the goal that I love about, you know, I love number one because a really good fable is one when you read it and think oh this is about my life right. uh they're they're supposed to be kind of universal like that and the real strength in the phoenix project and the unicorn is the characters yeah. so there's the character of brent he's in both books i don't know if name brent uh that went across both books but there's a character named brent who oh. is kind of the linchpin technical linchpin of, of the organization uh he knows how everything works at least the and he's constantly called to fix these little challenges uh, my favorite comparison was i someone compared brent to r2d2 in the star wars films <laughs> in that, oh, they said that R2-D2 of the Star Wars films, because yeah, he could fix just about anything. He saves the day, you know, saves every character, I think, every major character in those books at least once, but no one else can do what he does, because no one else right. understands it. And it's, you know, it's very common to have that kind of person, and that person and the organization really suffer as a result of it. Yep, yep. Yeah, and, and it's funny, because we all think back, and like, oh, yeah. You know, anybody who's worked in an IT environment knows, oh, yeah, I can point to, you know, one or two people that had that role. Um, and, you know, that was the interesting part about the Phoenix Project was it was all about how do we, you know, he becomes the constraint, uh, which is really all, you know, tied back to the goal. Um, and, you know, how do we alleviate that, right? You know, so that he only has to be brought in for the very specific things that, that really he can only do. And how do we sort of build processes around everything else and training and everything else so that he's not the only one who can do all these other things. We now can run, you know, multiple Brents in parallel because we, you know, we've now sort of not cloned him, but, you know, we've cloned his abilities, right? Across other people um, and across other teams, or maybe we've used automation, et cetera. So um, yeah, that was certainly an eye opening part of the the Phoenix project to me was just um, how so true that is in so many IT environments. 
Early in my career, I figured out which jobs were worth working at and which ones weren't, mostly by trial and error. I created a system that I used to find jobs and later contracts as a freelancer. If you're looking for a job or trying to figure out where you should go next, then check out my book, The Max Coder's Guide to Finding Your Dream Developer Job. The book walks you through figuring out what you want, vetting companies that meet your criteria, meeting that company's employees, and getting them to recommend you for a job. Don't settle for whoever has listed their job on the job board. Go out and proactively find the job you'll love. Buy the book at devchat.tv slash job book. That's devchat.tv slash job book. Right. And then another strong character, I don't think it's the same person, but it's the same name in both of them, uh, Sarah, who is Zach, uh, and really plays, I don't know if it's archetypal at this point, but the role of a business person who thinks that to get teams to do something you just have to push harder and harder and harder and i have known some business leaders like that in my careers who think that they're the engineers are being late or if i say this really this firm and this enthusiastically it'll get done when that that's often not the case and the best business leaders are the ones whom i can take and show them what's actually happening happening and they learn from that because they con they may not have the context to know that but right the not right. good business leaders are the ones who, you know, don't come to those meetings or kind of disregard what they're being told. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, it's, it's interesting. I mean, she's obviously, um, you know, sort of over the top, but I think, you know, every story sort of needs that the person that everyone sort of hates because right. you sort of need that to sort of keep, keep the tension going and it helps sort of, you know, keep you glued to the pages, but, but you're right. It's, it's, you know, we all sort of have at the same time, we've all seen that behavior. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, and yeah, it's the people who don't understand technology and don't really want to. I mean, we get it. The business people are not going to become technologists. Um, but who was it? I just saw pointed out that some of like the biggest technology companies today are being run by technology people, um, mm. Microsoft and you know, and Amazon. And I remember what else was sort of pointed at. Um, certainly, Google. You know, in its earlier days, um, and you know, maybe that's really what it takes to sort of overcome, right? What we're re- what we read about in the Phoenix Project or in the Unicorn Project is somebody who already, you know, who really does have that um, mindset because they've lived through it, and you know, they can sort of build a culture to solve those types of problems. Um, that every, you know, at some point, every technology company or technology organization part of a company is going to face these. I think uh, the common thread between, you know, really effective business people and really effective technologists is a will to admit that you don't know everything and listen. If you can do that, you will be so successful in this industry (laughs) and beyond. And I remember a previous company I worked at, I had some close friends in the marketing department. They told me how condescending it seemed when a developer tried to explain to them how they should market product. They do need to know how the product works and they need to know what the features and such are, but marketing really is their specialty. And there's a <laughs> lot involved in it that we don't think about. Yeah. Uh, and or we as technologists don't think about. So I think, you know, the, the common thread of what makes someone effective is that willingness to not know it all to admit you don't know it all, and then listen to those who do know the things you don't know. Yeah. Humility, right? That's really what it right. comes down to. Yeah. Humility is really what, uh, you know, the, the power to be able to say, I don't know, um, because none of us know everything. And certainly, you know, I mean, in, in this, you know, especially I think today where everything is so specialized, mm-hmm. uh, we should all realize that we don't know everything. There's, you know, there's, there's probably very, of all the things out there, you know, we have a you know, pretty small basket of things I can say, hey, I really know this inside and out. It's probably, you know, few and far between. So I think you're right. We all, you know, sort of can benefit from being a little bit more humble. Yeah, I'm wondering if you, because the uh, perspective of a security person or some of the security characters, I noticed there wasn't asked to find a security person in this book as there was in the Phoenix Project. I don't remember his name, but the guy was like an archetype of, security person who always says no. Right. Um, but what, 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 did, what did you think of the, the representation of security in, in the unicorn? Yeah, I thought it was interesting. You're right. It wasn't, it was much more subtle. 
um, in the Unicorn Project than it was in the Phoenix Project. Um, Shannon, I think, somehow is tied to security, but she has That's like this. Right. Yeah, but she has this, you know, big data background as well. So, um, which I find really interesting because part of what I thought about the Unicorn Project was that some of these things that were brought up, some of the issues, I start, I, I'm seeing in, you know, that, that they're starting to creep up in security as well. So, mm-hmm. you know, it's interesting. Like the whole book is about the data-driven organization, right? And that's part of the challenge that we have in security is that when we start to, you know, everyone, you're probably familiar with Splunk, you know, so we're, right. we're aggregating all this logging data and we're trying to, you know, be able to run queries um, looking for, you know, security-related incidents. Um, we call that threat hunting. And it's just like, it, it's just its own, um, you know, sort of specialty, but it's, it's become such a big um, problem to solve because of the big data issues of how do we get queries that don't take minutes and mm-hmm. hours to run? How do we um, sort of normalize this data, sort of try to prune it where we can, but we don't want to, you know, obviously don't want to get rid of, you know, it's just all these big data challenges. Um, and then on the other hand, how do we sort of automate where we can as well so that you don't have to have the Brent running mm-hmm. every query, you know, why, why should he? You know, let's just try to automate some of them that we can. And, and it's interesting because I, I see so many organizations struggling with that. And it's all these same processes that they're talking about in the Unicorn Project, but they're probably just, you know, we're only talking about one system or one, you know, it's a, it's a smaller um, sort of, you know, set of issues, but it's just as, you know, it's just as apparent. And, and that to me is what, you know, so I thought I was really, I, I was really uh, um, taken by the fact that Shannon has this like big data background because it just, it really fits with where security is going today. Um, but you're right. I mean, just to get back to your, the, the question, it was, you know, it was certainly a more subtle security wasn't taking the front seat in certain issues, like it really did with, with infrastructure. But I guess, you know, in some respects, that's normal. You know, one thing they did mention though, um, was, I can't remember who, you know, at some point they had a meeting with somebody, Shannon's like, yeah, I walked up a meeting with so-and-so because he runs the security something or other. Um, and he talks about how, well, you can't deploy your application into production yourself, right? That, that's part of what they were talking about was, okay, I made a, you know, I make a fix or, you know, an update or, you know, to the code or whatever. Can we do our own automated testing? And then if everything looks good, can we, you know, push into production? Right. And his comment back to that was, well, no, you can't do that because we have to do the security testing of it. Um, and it was interesting. We didn't, you know, the book doesn't go into that. And I don't, I don't, I mean, I think it would be ancillary or, or tangential to do so, but that's really what we, from a security standpoint, have really been pushing as well is that that's actually not a great, like, that's not the, the paradigm we want. We want the developers to be running the security tools themselves. And to be able to say, okay, part of my automated testing is the security testing, right? And so now the developer sees right back, well, oh, wait a second here. Yeah, I'm, you know, we do have, I don't know, a, you know, cross-site scripting issue that, you know, is popping up with that new, you know, with the new interface uh, changes that we made or, or what have you, right? So we want them to see that and then be able to go back in and, and make the fix or, you know, whatever, again, you know, whatever is relevant for that. For that uh, but that's really what we want is, to be, you know, hand in hand, we don't, you know, it shouldn't be that security has to get involved every time you've got a one-line code change um, that needs to be promoted into production. There's a character in the book, his name is Jared or something like that, when they're trying to uh, merge all the changes in, yeah. and he, the one person who can copy and paste the commit SSH uh, into the system and then have it deployed. So every, everything's all ready for deploy, the tests are all run, and everyone's waiting for this dude, uh, one person who seems like his sole job is to be the, 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 the bottleneck, yeah. uh, the, the oh, one man. person who can improve <laughs> changes, or it, changes have to go up through layer and layer and layer of people. And you know, at big enterprises, that's common to see. And it's really hard because the higher up someone is you know, away from the developer who's making the change or the technical person who's making the change, I mean, the less context they have for it. Right. Uh, I heard a, I remember a talk from someone who had just taken up 
or a CEO or something, and someone handed him a piece of paper with a change and said, can you approve this change? And he said, I, I have no idea how I'm supposed to prove that change. I don't have the context for it. Right. Uh, so it, it, it was interesting to see that and how you know infuriating that can be as it goes through layers and layers of tickets and different reporting structures and such. Yep. Yeah. I, you know, I'm curious, like, you know, what I've seen in organizations is there's always like this change management board, mm-hmm. but that's usually more for like the infrastructure stuff, not for, you know, they're, they're usually not approving every, every um, code change. So I don't know how other organizations like, um, you know, how, how they're, how formalized that process works, but, you know, even on the infrastructure side, I mean, the change management board is usually like, you know, how do they know? what the change that you're presenting, I mean, it's the same problem. Like, how do you, how do you um, without spending 40 hours a week, like going through mm-hmm. every change and understand the context and show me what you're doing and like, how do they really know? They don't. I mean, it's a control that, that's put in place because somebody at some point decided that, you know, the infrastructure people were running amok and making changes mm-hmm. and causing outages. And, um, you know, it's really the same thing. And, and, and to be honest, I think a lot of it is just silliness because, you know, whether you're on the operation side or the dev side, if you're the one who has to live with that, with the outcome of the change, then that usually, you know, alters your behavior <laughs> radically, right? Right. And then, you know, go and, and, and uh, troubleshoot and fix a change I made. I'm more likely to do it right the first time. And maybe I'll learn, like, you know, we talked about earlier, the mistakes we made, we learn from those, we don't make those mistakes again. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, especially pairing junior people with senior people and doing all that sort of thing, um, you know, changes should be fairly safe if you've got a really, you know, if you've got a good team, right? If you've got a technically savvy team, um, your changes should be fairly safe. Yeah, if you've got a good team and the, you know, things like continuous integration and such to, to back you up. Yeah, uh, because you know, a hundred yeah. item checklists. I've had to deal with those. Something's gonna get missed. It's just, it's just, it. No matter how much attention you pay to it, it's just that yeah. that is too many variables for a human being to keep track of. Absolutely. And having it automated, so much better. <laughs> yeah. Yep. Absolutely. Um, yeah, and I loved all the you know the, the you know the talk about how they're doing that. You know how the you know part of the the continuous integration process was the automated tests that were going, you know, alongside of it. And then, you know, when they started to realize that they were outgrowing some of the, um, you know, some of the automated tests and that it go back in and sort of figure out, okay, how do we do this better? And, you know, how do we, what was that? Um, like something about project kitten or something. I'm trying to remember what that was. Yeah, Unikitten? Some, something yeah, like that. Unikitten or yeah, Unikitten. The, the CI CD server. Yeah. Yeah. You know, and, and okay, now we're outgrowing it. And, and, you know, what, what was the funny, there was a funny line there. Like that was like, Okay, this developer, you know, um, runs the the tests and 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 it didn't, it fails the first time, tries again, fails the second time, tries again, fails the third time, tries again, the fourth time it passes. Yes, been there. Oh, <laughs> it's like wait a second here. This is not you know a roulette wheel, right? <laughs> What's right. going? But you know, it's it's you know again. I think what's so interesting about the book is it, it's just this continuous process. It's a continuous process of learning, developing, and you know, it's not like, you know, hey, we got there, we're done, you know, crack open the champagne. It's no, it's continually, you know, evolving and changing and getting better. I once worked for a CEO, I worked for him for three years. And every time you're trying to get a new initiative in place or launch a new product, he said, well, we just have to do this one thing. And then it's all going to get easy. <laughs> it never gets easy. Right. It might, yeah. I mean, it doesn't have to be impossible. That's what you're going for. You want it to be possible to do the work that you need to do, but it's never going to be easy. Uh, it's always going to be changing, um, but there's ways to do that. So it's I, one of the things when I went to customer sites was it have to be this painful. Yeah. I mean, you, sh- you, and this is something I've seen, your marriage and your relationships shouldn't be breaking up because of your server system or because of your code or your, or your business in general. It, yep. it doesn't have to hurt this much. Right. Right. You know, it's, you know, that, that was, you just remind me of another part that I thought was so interesting was when we talked about um, project inversion, right? Mm-hmm. Where you know, sort of paused all feature releases, and now we're just going to focus on technical debt. And they had a really good definition for technical debt, and, and I thought that that was such an interesting part. Um, but what was really what really struck me about that was um, when they talked about the idea that you know the 
that 30 day period was really about helping to develop, helping to develop the processes, helping to enable and make it easier on the developers. Like we're, we are going to remove technical debt. And part of what that means is that we're building better systems and better ways for the developers to, to do what they need to be doing. So I think it was like mm-hmm. the focus on, okay, let's focus on the build process. Let's focus on the CICD process. And I thought that was so interesting. Like we can't just ignore our tools and hope that they sort of, mm-hmm. you know, continue to work. We need to continually look at our own workflow um, and develop it and, um, you know, and, and sort of have it, stay in lockstep with what we're doing and then you know features will come about and and we'll be able to do those in a more efficient way i don't know if i'm articulating this well but it it just the idea i thought was so profound simple profound and and it was just you know really stuck with me it stuck with me um you know a lot of the focus when you're a developer is on features because those are what get the most and that's what customers are asking for um, yep. But the only way you can deliver them timely is if you have you know, easy environments, easy QA environments. I mean, I, I was identifying a lot when I think Maxine, that's the main characters. Yeah, Maxine, Maggie is someone else. But Maxine right. was trying to get her development environment set up and needed, it was documented anywhere, access to all these systems, all these certain keys. And I just thought, oh man, I know how that feels because you know, the business sees more developers being hired and thinks that's going to make them faster. But if they can't get a development environment, they can't work. Right. So it, it, it's kind of compounding the problem. Yeah. Uh, I mean, I can't tell you how many times, I'm sure you've seen this too, how many countless times you've seen that, like you get into an environment, especially in a, on the consulting side where I've been, um, you know, how many times you get into an environment and you can't do anything because you don't have access to the 25 systems that you need to have right. access to in order to be able to do your job. Um. You know, it's like, so yeah, sometimes, sometimes you're shocked. Like you, you, you show up, you're like, okay, here's your laptop. And it's already got everything set up for you. You're like, seriously, that can't be like, what, what, where am I? What, what's going on? Cause that's not normal. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. It, it's, it's, it's crazy. Just how, again, it's just these, these truisms that are so universal. Right. right. Something else I loved was uh, the, I've never seen a message bus be featured as a software project in a novel or anything to that effect. And <laughs> was it was it Data Hub was yeah, the message Data bus? Hub. Yeah. And I loved how it emphasized how that was the nexus that allowed all the different parts of the business, you know, even the big data in this book, all those different data systems to be queried and interacted with. I just I, I really enjoyed that and it showed that the authors really understood uh the technology, not just the technology, but the, the types of ways that technology is used. Yeah. Yeah. No, that's a good point. It's, it's one of those things that everybody else would sort of overlook because it's not, it's not exciting. It's not no. flashy. Um, but yeah, exactly. It's, it's one of those systems that runs in the background and just makes everything else work. Mm-hmm. Are you freelancing or moonlighting? Or maybe you've thought about going out on your own. Every week, we have a group of developers at various stages of the freelancing journey on The Freelancer Show to talk about becoming better at freelancing. We also bring in experts to talk about marketing, SEO, and delivering high quality to clients. So if you're interested in going freelance or you are freelance, check it out at freelancershow.com. I wonder if maybe we can talk a bit about the five ideals. I'm just going to up real quickly here. Yes, yeah. I'm turning yeah, actual pages. Back in the book, like, they actually like, list them out for you so you don't have to like... Yeah. Uh, there's the first ideal, which is locality and simplicity, and I think the message bus project is a good example of that. They were able they were able to figure out how to test it uh, apart from the rest of the Phoenix project. Yes, yeah, the whole idea of like breaking everything apart into APIs, and um, I love the you know the whole member that wasn't it Narwhal project that had to like yeah. normalize APIs. I can't tell you how many environments I've been in like that where like. We can't get the APIs to talk to each other. The APIs change too often. And so then we have to change all our code. And so mm-hmm. we can put this middle, basically a middleman in the middle there. And it's just, yeah. Um, but again, it's just so, you know, it's just sort of struck home. Like, yeah, locality, simplicity. That means I can focus on what I know and I don't have to know what everything else is going on and be part of that and know that, oh, they made a change. And therefore, I need to make a change to match that change and, you know, et cetera, et cetera. 
Right. I remember in the early days of Habitat, when I used to chef, uh, we set it up as a microservice environment, which is great. But what we missed was that when we made a change in one microservice, we had to make a change in like six others at the same time. Wow. So we had tried to bring, you know, do the microservices pattern, but based on that locality, how one microservice, you know, there should be some contract, there's sort of API among them that doesn't change or is versioned or such. But yeah, making a change in one place shouldn't involve making a change in six or seven places. Right, right. <clears throat> yeah, and so I, but I think you have a good point there. Sometimes it's easier said than done because mm-hmm. some, some of these problems are, are, yeah, I mean, they're vast, they're challenging um, and a lot of times they're legacy, like trying to figure out well, why was it that way in the first place? And you know, that was one thing that I think also was brought up in the book is like, you know, sometimes you have these like legacy things you're just trying to figure out what is that artifact for? What, you know, why was right. that there? It was there for some reason, but none of us, you know, none of us know why. Right. I remember I, I worked on a system. I, we had a local copy of a gem that had been yanked from Ruby gems. So that was the oh. only, I don't remember why but that was the only copy of it that we had and we couldn't get it elsewhere. Yeah, that's crazy. But yeah, it, it's not, not surprising because yeah, you know, they updated it and then it killed whatever you were using. Right. Yeah, who knows whether maybe it killed a feature. Right. Yeah. yeah. All right. Second ideal is focus, flow, and joy. Yeah. You know, what's, what's kind of cool to me about the ideals is that some of them are so focused on um, – just the personal, the, the mindset, the enjoyment you get out of work, the motivation, right, for wanting to come to work. Um, and, you know, it's, I think that's so interesting. It's so, um, in some ways, it's sort of refreshing in that uh, it's, hey, we want our employees to be motivated. We want them to come in. We want them to enjoy work because they're going to be more productive. And it's just, it's the win-win. It's, it's the employees are enjoying it better. They want to come to work. And the company gets more from them. So it's like, you know, it really is a, a true win-win, um, you know, but it's sort of, you know, it's also sort of like touchy-feely and that's not always mm-hmm. what we, you know, expect to see in like in a technology book. So, um, you know, again, sort of kudos to this idea, you know, the idea that Jim Kim for like sort of bringing this out, that this really is important. It's an ideal um, for, right. yeah. Engineers want to work on interesting <clears throat> problems. Yep. I, that I've never never met an engineer who who didn't want to work on uh, interesting problems, except a very very burnt out engineer, and that's you know, that shows that there's a larger problem. But yeah, yeah we want to be able to focus, uh, which is difficult in the age of Slack and other things. When I've got seven or eight people oh, pinging yeah, me, seriously, uh, I mute my notifications regularly for like yeah. it might just be a Pomodoro, like twenty five minutes. Right. Uh, if something really, if the world is on fire. Mm-hmm they will call me. Right. Uh, and it takes a lot for someone to call you these days, yes. found, which is yeah. fine by me. Right. Um, but yeah, in order to have motivated engineers who you know, do new things, who innovate, there, there must be that ability to focus, that ability to stay in that flow. Uh, and there must be some joy uh, in the work. I mean, it's, it makes you think of the Marie, Marie Kondo thing. You know, does this spark joy? Right. Right. Yeah. I, I, I think it's, uh, again, I mean, it's so true. And it, and it really, I mean, this is one of those ideals that, that just transcends, um, you know, development work. It really just, it's, it's everything that we do. Um, mm-hmm. You know, it's, there's no way to motivate yourself to do something day in and day out when you hate it. Right. Right. Or you will be a very, very bitter, jaded person uh, <laughs> yes. after like a Yeah. Yeah. All right. Third ideal. Uh, Third ideal, improvement of daily work. Yeah, and it, you know, it makes sense. It, it, exactly, it, it makes sense. It's like, um, to me, it's just, it's the follow-up, right? It's, it's the idea that um, we, there's certain things that, you know, if only, uh, I'm trying to remember some of the numbers I've seen in the past. I, sometimes people talk about like, you know, in your job, you only enjoy 25% of what you do. Or have you ever heard mm-hmm. those types of, you know, that people will quote those? I don't know where those numbers came from, but, you know, some small percent of what you do um, is what you enjoy. And I, I hope that that's, you know, completely false. But, mm-hmm. you know, it is, again, it's the same problem. Like, if you go into work and there's only a certain things that you enjoy, and the vast majority of what you have to do is meetings or TPS reports or, 
mm-hmm. workspace, whatever that movie was called. Um, uh, office space. Office space. Thank Classic. You. Yeah. Um, you know, then it just, it just kills you. It just kills your motivation. So everything's got to be the, you know, it, most of what you do every day should be the things that you want to be doing. Um, mm-hmm. If not, I, again, you just have this bigger systemic problem on your hands. Right, right. And I like the idea, you know, particularly when it comes to automation of steadily improving uh, daily yeah. work as part of the daily work. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. And, and trying to, exactly. I mean, <clears throat> the doldrums, I mean, nobody wants to have to do the stuff that just, I mean, if it, if it can be automated, that means by definition, it's not challenging. It's not interesting. Right. It's not anything that most people want to be doing. Uh, all right, fourth ideal, big one, psychological yeah. safety. Yeah, I mean, this is what we were talking about before, like people getting fired because, you know, of an outage or, um, you know, I love the idea of these, um, what do they say, no blame post-mortems? I, uh, blameless post-mortems. Bla- yeah, blameless post-mortems. And, you know, it, it's it, that's really what it, what it should be all about, right? I mean, <clears throat> I mean, unless we're talking about having to take disciplinary action because somebody did something egregious, like it should just be about, okay, let's figure out um, how we do this better. And it's not about pointing fingers. It's just mm-hmm. we all have to learn from it. Um, I, you know, the organizations I see, it's, unfortunately, I think it's it's rare to see, um, for me, to see companies that really do postmortems consistently, mm-hmm. um, you know, sort of in a repeatable way, and really do it so that they get to that sort of lesson learned. Um, mm-hmm. I just, I think it's, I don't know why, but I think this is a really tough ideal for a lot of companies to to come to grips with. It is. I remember I worked for a very large company uh, at one point, and our supervisors literally kept a spreadsheet of the employ- uh, the mistakes that their reports wow. made. Literally, there was a spreadsheet, and if you got too many, uh, you got discipline. You got talked to, or up to disciplinary action or termination. Wow. And the thing is, the things they would keep track of were things that automation could solve. Again, 100, 100 item checklist, something yeah. is going to get missed at right. some point. Right. Uh, and just there was no psychological safety and people had a tendency to, you know, really try to point out other people's mistakes as a way to uh, distract from their own. And it, it yeah. really gets to kind of a, a, a lore of the flies kind of feeling. And no yeah. one wants to work in that environment. No, that's um, nasty. I mean, that's, that's... Yeah, it's... It's just not good. You know, mistakes happen. Uh, you know, we, we acknowledged earlier, does gross misbehavior happen? Yes, but that's very rare. And right. that's something that should be dealt with separately uh, from the blameless postmortem. The blameless postmortem should be focused on the systems, not on the people. Yep. Yep, absolutely. And again, I think I, I just feel like that's, um, <clears throat> you know, we see it like in the security side, we'll see it like, you know, post investigations, post incident. Hey, let's figure out what happened, you know, where we were, you know, what we did well, what we need to work on. Um, and in the better organizations, they're doing that in a very blameless way and just saying, mm-hmm. hey, you know, what could, you know, what, what, what areas, whether it's a technology process, skills, whatever it is, how do we do better at this? Right. We can improve yeah. it. <laughs> Uh, all right, and the fifth one, uh, customer focus. This one reminded me a lot of Amazon. I think customer obsessed is one of their values or something right. like that. <clears throat> yeah, yeah, um, absolutely. You know, I think, you know, this is also one where I think, um, to, you know, very few organizations do this well because I feel like too often <clears throat> most people sort of feel like they are, um, you know, sort of divorced or, or removed from their customers, right? We don't, we don't really know well, what, what is it? What, you know, what problem are we trying to solve? And, you know, how do our customers use this? And, um, you know, I, I feel like this is a huge piece. Again, this is a huge um, gap for many organizations. I, again, from the security side, I, I can't tell you how many organizations I'll go to and I'll say, you know, we'll talk about, hey, <clears throat> what are the products? You know, what, what are you trying to secure? And there's sort of this vague, you know, vague notion as to what the products are that they, you know, especially like technology companies, like mm-hmm. what are all these like technology products that you're building? What are they? How do your customers interact with them? How do they use them? What's normal? What's not? I don't know. I don't really know what these products are. I don't really know what they do. I don't really, you know, it's just, it's so often that 
that the folks doing the work, uh, whatever that work is, are just so removed from the end customer that, yeah, I mean, it's just, it's hard to, you know, you're so far away from this ideal. I really liked the program that the Parts Unlimited had where employees, especially executives, uh, would go and work store for a week or something like that. It reminded me a lot of that show Under Boss when you right. really... <laughs> yes. <clears throat> which, which is one of those comforting shows in, in this age of COVID-19 and such, but you almost always see the boss realize, you know, there's some little thing where, right. like, I think there was one 7-Eleven uh, ex- chief executive officer went to work at the stores and he was making coffee and he said, this, wouldn't this be a lot easier if you just had a sink right here? And it just, he was so far removed and all the other execs were so far removed uh, from it that they saw it, you know, adding a sink as a cost, but look, it makes things a lot better for the employees and a lot better for the customers as well. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I think if you can, you know, if you can get your people into a store or into where, you know, physically located where the customers are, obviously for every business, that's not possible, Right. but that makes it so much easier. It does. And the things that, you know, as a developer, the things that bother us are the things that get fixed first. Mm-hmm. Right. <clears throat> Which I think goes back to those, you know, initial ideals that we were talking about, like what motivates people and, mm-hmm. um, you know, what, why do you come to work and what are you trying to solve? Well, we're coming toward the end of our hour. There was one more thing I wanted to mention. Uh, so Dr. Nicole Forsgren is a friend of mine. And when her as Sensei Forsgren in the book. I, I'm totally caught that next to her. Well, I guess in Japanese, it would be Forsgren Sensei. But I liked the, the, the meaning of, or the, the featuring of names of real people in the, the DevOps world. Yes. Yes. Yeah, I, I thought that was amazing too. One, you know, one thing I was going to mention was um, after I read it, I went to, um, to Jim Kim's website, to itrevolution.com. And he's got a resource guide. It's one of his blog posts from like late December. Um, and he talks about, I, I don't, I think he's only got part one. I haven't found part two, but he talks about a lot of the resources there and the people. And I feel like, you know, this is such a great reading list. Like we could do probably five more sessions talking about all of the different, you know, resources, right. right? And books and um, cause it, it touches on the book. Um, the Unicorn Project touches on so many other books and works and mm-hmm. so many interesting um, fields of study that, you know, are being brought in and, and applied um, in a really profound way. So I, I, to me, that's one of the amazing parts of this book is just like, I, I feel like you could probably do, you know, like a master's or PhD, you know, on several different areas of this book, just by sort of diving into mm-hmm. all these resources and just, you know, you know, going to town and, and understanding them. Right, right. There's, there's real research to back these things up. Yeah, 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 which is fun. You know, again, it's a fable, but um, it just shows like how, you know, sort of um, built on solid foundations it really is. It's, it's why it's such a true, you know, so many truisms in there. Awesome. Well, any uh, last thoughts before we go to picks? Um, no, I think we... We covered the areas. I mean, I, like I said, there, there, you know, a few things that I wanted to point out that I loved about the book. I think we pointed them out. So I, I feel like, uh, you know, again, we could spend hours more on this, but um, I, I think we hit a lot of good topics. A lot awesome. Of good areas. Yeah. Well, listeners, definitely recommend the Unicorn Project uh, if you have yet. It's a fairly quick read. I mean, it looks long. It's like 400, man. That is it. Like 350 pages. Um, the part of that's the index and such. Uh, but it's a quick read. Uh, it feels like a fiction book that you're reading. Yep. Totally cool. agree. I, I was able to read it in a couple of days. So it, it reads fast. Cool. Well, uh, let's go ahead and go to picks. Uh, I have one pick today. Uh, we are recording this on Wednesday, May 27th. And my pick for today, it's a little timely, but uh, is NASA. So even though the launch today of uh, the SpaceX spacecraft that would you know, have been returning uh, uh, you know, Americans to space, being launched from American soil, which is amazing. I grew up in the 90s, huge fan of the space program. I went to space camp and everything else. And you know, just the idea of America launching astronauts again was phenomenal. Uh, as the, this, as 
out, as you already know, if you're listening to the show, uh, the launch got scrubbed for today. They're going to try again in a few days. And that happens. I've talked about psychological safety. You know, astronauts have to worry a lot about physical safety and keep, keep you know, there's times when the weather doesn't allow you to do what you want to do. But seeing how enthusiastic we're about this launch, you know, seeing all the social media threads and such coming from it, it feels like that 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 magic of the early space shuttle programming cast. So my pick today is uh, NASA. Awesome. Um, wow, that's a, that's a tough one to try and follow up on. Oh. <laughs> um, I, I was, I, and I have to tell you, um, I was, uh, you know, sort of really interesting, and, and I was following that story as well, just because it's so interesting that, you know, first time that this was going to be the first time that a private, you know, SpaceX, this private um, company is putting astronauts into space, um, where we, it's always been a government thing, or it's always mm -hmm. been NASA, or it might have been the, pre was there a predecessor to NASA um, in the early, earlier 60s? Uh, might have been the really early NASA days, was. but yeah. I don't remember. Either way, yeah. it was a you know it was a government um, agency. So I, I totally agree. I that that was it's just so interesting. I mean, the whole SpaceX company and what they're doing, the reusable uh, space vehicles and and all that. So just to sort of tie on, um, yeah, you know, I, yeah, that's a tough one to, uh, <laughs> to, to <laughs> sorry to follow up on. It really is. To me, I I I think that the pick that uh, so I'm sort of focused on at the moment is. Um, the whole sort of return to work um, mm -hmm. is such a big topic right now with, um, you know, in the COVID world, um, we're at the point where many states are trying to reopen and figuring out how do we do this in a safe way, but how do we let businesses try to, you know, try to reopen and, and let them try to get their livelihoods back and that sort of thing. Um, and so many companies, it's so interesting to watch the companies um, also, and what their reactions were two that really stand out to me is on the one hand, you got Facebook who says, mm -hmm. you know, you got Zuckerberg coming out saying, um, we're probably going to be working from home forever in five to 10 years. Like that's, that's going to be everything. And then I saw um, Microsoft had like the 180 degree shift on that saying, no, we see a lot of value in the personal interactions mm -hmm. um, and having people, you know, coming into an office. And this, the way this is developing and the way that, I mean, obviously, you know, I don't want to downplay anything of, of COVID-19 and just how right. scary and just how traumatic it's been. But, you know, what it's also causing long-term, you know, and sort of pushing the envelope for many companies who didn't want to do work from home. And, you know, it's just, to me, that's really what's, uh, what's top of mind. It's just sort of watching this sort of play out and as companies sort of grapple with what does this mean? How do we do it? How do we do it securely? But how do we do it in a productive way? And how do we look out, you know, what's best for our employees? Um, and uh, it's, it's going to be really interesting to see how this sort of plays out over the next months and probably years. Yeah. It's what I've loved the most. Uh, the Department of Defense, who I have some experience with, uh, they, for some position at least, it have started to embrace working from home and they very, very much didn't uh, at first. So it'll be interesting to see where they go. And it is, you know, anytime there's a big historic, you know, big event, like I was 17 about when 9-11 happened and, you know, the world didn't go back to the way it was then um, right. going to. I do think after COVID-19, the world, it's not going to go back to the way it was. There's going to be changes, but we're really at the forefront on things like how we of making those changes and figuring out what works for us and what doesn't. And it's different from company to company and person to person. Yep. Absolutely. Um, I, I, I totally agree. It's, it's, there's not going to be one, you know, one rule or one, you know, one thing that everyone's doing. It's, it's, uh, yeah. Um, but so that, that's my sort of, I guess my pick is just, you yeah. know, where does work from home? Because I think it, it just hits all of us. Like, where does work from home? What does that look like in, you know, in the coming months and years? Um, awesome. Well, thank, well thank you. It's, I really enjoyed this discussion with you. I'm so glad you were here. Yeah, I did too. It was great. A great book. Great idea. Um, I loved it. So I'm, I'm excited for the next time we do this. Awesome. Well, all our listeners, thanks for listening. Uh, definitely check out the Unicorn Project as a and everyone take care stay safe out there take care hmm.
Bandwidth for this segment is provided by Cashfly, the world's fastest CDN. Deliver your content fast with Cashfly. Visit C-A-C-H-E-F-L-Y.com to learn more.